Well, good morning. Welcome uh, to Citizens. My name is CJ. I'm one of the pastors. If I haven't got a chance to meet you yet. Um, Georgia mentioned earlier that this morning we're beginning a new series in the book of Romans, just Romans chapter 8. We'll be there for several weeks. And the book of Romans is written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. Paul is most likely living in the city of Corinth when he writes this letter. And Paul has been traveling all around Greece planting churches, raising up leaders, addressing heresies, uh, dealing with various church conflicts. But most importantly, the reason that he's traveling around at this time is to collect money to bring back to the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem is where Christians were experiencing the most persecution at the time. And they were extremely poor. Many of the Jewish believers living in Jerusalem were probably employed in some way by the temple system. And so when they decided to follow Jesus, many of them would have been out of work, losing their jobs. And so Paul has been going around collecting all this money and he's leaving Corinth. He's on his way to Jerusalem and he writes this letter to the church in Rome. Now, Paul has actually never been to Rome. He didn't plant the church there. He didn't raise up its leaders. But all his life, Paul dreamed of going to Rome, okay? Rome was the center of the most powerful empire the world had ever known at the time. This past year, I took my son Keen uh, to Baltimore to meet his birth family. And we had about a half day to kill while we waited for them to come. And so we took the train to D.C. And I've never been to the East Coast. Um, I'd never been to D.C. or anything like that. And I am not the most patriotic person in the world. People that know me will attest to that. Um, but man, going to the National Mall, like seeing the Capitol and seeing all the monuments there was pretty unbelievable. Like just witnessing the birthplace of all the ideals of this country, okay? Whether you think they're good or not. Um, our founding fathers had these dreams that this society could sort of represent the maximum of human potential, okay? And so people from all over the world come to D.C., not just to see neat statues, right, but to celebrate the ideals that they represent. And so Paul similarly has this ache in his soul for Rome, the epicenter of the most ambitious political ideals in history at the time. He writes this in Romans chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. He says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. William Barclay says all his life, Paul had been haunted by the thought of Rome. It might well be said that the name Rome was written on his heart. Now Paul's reasoning though, to go to Rome was not so that he could marvel at the architecture, culture, and political ideals of this ancient superpower. Instead, Paul sees Rome as the key to the spread of the gospel throughout the West. Look at what he says in Romans 15, 23 through 25. But now... 
Since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Okay, so Paul is, is excited to go to Rome, but he's looking through Rome, right, to Spain because he wants to bring the gospel as far west as he possibly can. Okay, and so his plan is actually to go to Rome and make Rome a base of operations for his mission to reach Spain. Okay, it's not Rome that Paul loves as much as what Rome can accomplish for the gospel. We know that Paul is actually pretty unimpressed by Roman law. He doesn't see Rome and its ideals as worthy of God's standard. He knows well that Rome could not secure for its subjects or the rest of the world what it promised to them. Only the gospel could do that. Only news of this man named Jesus from this small town called Nazareth who came to break in a new kingdom. Only that can produce a society that not only the Romans dreamed of, but all people for all time from every corner of the earth. Okay, so Paul brings that truth to bear in these first four verses of Romans 8. And what he does is he draws a distinction between two different types of law. The law of the flesh and the law of the spirit. The law of the flesh represents, in Paul's mind, all of the best human efforts at creating a civil and just society. Like if humans just do their very best to create a civil and just society, that's the law of the flesh. The law of the spirit represents God's response to the failed efforts of human law. The formula for a society that is civil and just has eluded mankind for millennia, right? There's something in us as people that believes that if we could just agree on the correct set of principles, the right laws, we could all flourish. And isn't that after all what our founding fathers set out to do? Look at these words from John Adams. He says, good government is an empire of laws. Politics is the science of human happiness and the felicity of societies depends on the constitutions of government under which they live. You wonder what John Adams might think about the U.S. today. Okay, but man, he believed, him and his constituents, like believed if we could just create the right laws, the right balance of power, we could create a truly civil and just society. Okay, and we, we know that this American experiment is perhaps in its toughest moment ever. It definitely, and maybe in our lifetime it is. More and more people are wondering and questioning if these laws can really make good on their promise. Well, guess who's not surprised that they can't? God. Because no matter how hard we try, we will never manufacture shalom without him. 
Because God's law is not of this world. It's from the Spirit, his own Spirit. Okay, and so this morning, my prayer for us, and I believe what Paul is saying to us, is that the law of the Spirit is incomparably better than the law of the flesh. Because the law of the flesh might make you right, but it doesn't make you righteous. Okay? We can try and try to be made righteous by human law, but it will always fall tragically short. Let me pray and then we'll dive in here. God, we admit this morning that we are complicit in this sort of human notion that we can, by our own best thoughts, create a rightly ordered society. We are like the Babylonians, constantly building towers to show you that we don't need you. And every time, Lord, you confuse and confound our language so that we can no longer understand one another. And so we come as your people, as the church this morning, confessing our great need for you, confessing that it's so overwhelming even to think about such things because we know we don't have within our own wisdom what it takes. And so we ask you, Jesus, to let your kingdom of righteousness break into our hearts this morning, break into this church family and break into our city as the people of God follow you, trust you, obey you, bear witness to you. So Holy Spirit, would you anoint the words of your scriptures today for us? Leave us here changed, desiring you more, obeying you more. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can head to Romans chapter 8. We'll be in verses one through four. Otherwise, I'll have all the scriptures on the screen. So we're kind of jumping in to the middle of a train of thought here with Paul, right? Um, we're eight chapters into one of the most like weighty books in the New Testament. Okay, we're kind of jumping into, um, it's like he's doing a TED talk that's two hours and we showed up an hour late. And so we need to get a little bit caught up. Um, and so something to note about the book of Romans is that because Paul has never been to Rome and doesn't know these people, this epistle is less occasional than any of his other letters. Normally, when he writes to churches, like when he writes to Corinthians and the Ephesians, he's speaking to people that he knows really well. And so a lot of those, a lot of what's in those epistles uh, is addressing specific issues that he's been made aware of. That's not the case here. This is more like a, um, a theological treatise. Okay, one, one commentator calls it testamental. It's like Paul's last will and testament. Okay, he's sort of laying out a systematic theology. The other issue is that because um, there are some people living in Jerusalem, some Christians living in Jerusalem that are antagonists of Paul, he's worried that, that, word, that bad words have been said about him to the church in Rome. Okay, I don't know if you remember this. Um, we, we did a series called Pray Like Paul in the summer of 2020, also known as the summer we don't speak of. Um, and I preached in Romans 15, where Paul says this to the Romans, I appeal to you brothers by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the spirit 
to strive together with me in your prayers. He's asking for prayer on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. So Paul actually has some enemies in Jerusalem that he's thinking about when he's writing to the Romans. Okay, he has two enemies. One are antagonistic outsiders, okay? People, people that don't believe in Christ and intend to harm anyone that does. But he also has some unfaithful insiders. These are Jewish Christians who continue to sort of distort the gospel by insisting that Gentiles uh, adhere to the ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic law that Jesus came to fulfill, okay? So that's sort of what's been going on. So he's sort of um, writing this as sort of like a theological, hey, make sure you understand what I mean when I talk about the gospel. Um, Sadly, what Paul doesn't know when he's writing this is that he would never make it to Rome or to Spain. He's actually arrested and eventually killed before he ever arrives there. In the first eight chapters of Romans, Paul is laboring for this idea of righteousness, this huge theme of righteousness. Righteousness refers to our orientation or status before God. Okay? Are we in right standing with him? Do we measure up to the standard of holiness that God has? Are we acceptable in his sight? And so what Paul first does is sort of surveys the world of Gentiles. Is there anyone righteous among the Gentiles? Then the Jews, searching for signs of righteousness. And then he concludes this in Romans chapter 3, verse 9. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Paul says throughout the first eight chapters of Romans, when it comes to our orientation toward God, we, all of us, are unrighteous. None of us seeks God. All of us are in sin. The Bible defines sin as rebellion toward God in our thoughts, our words, our deeds, even the attitudes of our hearts. See, God created people to worship and glorify him. That is our very purpose for existing. But we have all failed to do that, both by what we have done and what we have left undone. And so we have fallen short of God's standard for holiness. When Paul says we are worthless, he's not saying we have no value whatsoever and that God hates us, okay? He is saying that any attempt we make at making ourselves right with God through our own actions, our own behavior, that is worthless. 
We cannot obey our way back to God. In fact, God's laws only reveal how far we are from him. And those laws cause us to sin all the more, not because there's anything wrong with the law, but because we are corrupt and constantly distort the laws for our own benefit. So the Bible says we are sinners. That word is not popular in our culture, is it? We, are in a, we have a leadership development program called Surge. And on Friday, Adam rightly said that sin is kind of a cuss word in our society, right? In the secular religion of individual autonomy and personal freedom, it's a sin to call something sin, okay? The law is like Instagram, okay? Social media isn't bad. The people who use it are bad. Okay? Loving, gracious, humble people could make social media the greatest thing in the world, but we don't. Okay? So Paul says, we are all sinners. No one does good, not even one. But there's good news. In Romans 7, look what he says. Verse 5, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Okay? These verses here in Romans 7 are what the word therefore in our text today refers to. Okay? You probably thought we would never get to our text today, but we are finally going to get there. Okay, Look what he says in Romans 8.1. There is therefore, okay, and what is that therefore? Because we have been released from the law, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul says, you were once condemned. Okay? You were like a house no one can live in because it might fall down. Any law you tried to follow only aroused your existing sinful passions. And 100% of the time, it resulted in sin. He calls it fruit for death. Okay? We're, we're under condemnation. But then something changed. You were made right with God in Christ. Now I pray that this would be the best news your heart could ever receive. That while you stood condemned before a holy God, that is the moment that Christ stepped in and removed that condemnation. The psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Brothers and sisters, have you felt the sharp blade of condemnation? It isn't swift. It is merciless. It takes its time gutting you from the inside out. Even if you don't believe there is a God who condemns you, you have certainly felt the weight of self-condemnation. 
or the scorn of those around you. People in your life who cast you out and said, you are unworthy. So whether you believe in the Bible or not, whether you believe in Christianity or not, you know well the feeling of condemnation because there is no escape from that on this earth. The reason why those of us who are Christians think that the gospel is good news is because those who are in Christ Jesus are no longer condemned and cannot be condemned by anyone else because Jesus let all the weight of that condemnation rest firmly upon his shoulders. Okay, so those of us who are well acquainted with ourselves and are able to tell the truth about ourselves of just how sinful a people we are, we are delighted in this truth that Jesus would remove our transgressions. It, it drives us here every Sunday. It makes us want to declare in worship our gratitude to Jesus for this undeserving gift that he would give us. It makes us want to fall on our knees in worship of him. I wonder, do you need to be reminded this morning that you are no longer condemned if you are in Christ? Maybe you are steeped in some sinful behavior right now. It overtakes you. You feel powerless. You feel condemned. Maybe you're in some relationship that no matter how hard you try, you never measure up. You're never good enough. You can't make it work. Maybe when you go to your job, you constantly feel like an imposter. If everyone knew how little you understood about your job, you would be shamed and cast out. Maybe you feel condemned trying just to obey all of the rules society imposes on you today. Don't say the wrong thing. Make sure you perfectly acknowledge any misstep from your past because it can be found out and ruin you. Make sure you read every book or article pertaining to all that is good and just in the world and be ready to stand up for justice at every moment. Be sure you don't have it wrong because if you fail, you are condemned. Maybe you don't need anyone on the outside to condemn you because all day, every day, when you think about yourself, your thoughts, your behaviors, your words, the attitudes of your heart, the state of your mind, body, and soul, you are steeped in shame, wondering if there is anyone who would want someone so condemned as you. There is someone that wants you. Jesus wants you. Every part of you. Every broken, sinful 
corner of your heart. Jesus says, I want to come and make it mine. He wants to remove that condemnation. Would you rest in that this morning? Would you remember again that God loves you, that he is for you, that he extends grace to you, And he delights in that gift of grace. He delights to forgive you. He is eager to welcome you into his presence this morning. When he looks at you, God sees all of Christ's strengths and none of your weaknesses. That is the law of the Spirit. It is far greater than the laws of the flesh. These laws of the flesh, laws that represent the best humanity has to offer, they aren't as good as the law of the spirit. Paul tells us why. Verse two. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Makes that contrast there between the law of the flesh and the spirit. Verse three. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, okay, there's nothing wrong with the law, but because we are the ones trying to obey it, can't. So he does what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And that's a little tricky phrase, and it just means that Jesus was actually a human, okay? He was actually a human with a body. He came like like sinful flesh, but without sin. And in that, he condemned sin in the flesh. Where is the condemnation now? On the sin itself, in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying a lot. Here's one thing he's saying, okay? Laws don't make people good, all right? At best, laws keep people from being as bad as they could be, right? We all know that, okay? Laws don't transform the heart of a person. They might restrain an evil person. They might punish an evil person person, but they don't produce righteousness in the heart of a person, okay? God's purpose for humans was and is not that we would be bad people restrained, but good people, righteous people, people who instead of being bent toward evil would be bent toward good. Now, Because mankind rebelled against God, there's a twofold process necessary to bring us back into a place of rightness and righteousness, okay? That two-step process is, first of all, justification, and second of all, sanctification, okay? Justification happens when the verdict comes in 
declaring us guilty of sin. And Jesus steps in at that last second and says, I will take CJ's punishment so that he can go free. That's justification. Sanctification takes it a step further. It's when Jesus also tells the court, and I will personally see to it that CJ becomes a different man than he is today. Paul says the law of the flesh doesn't do this. It can't do this. Okay, because it's weakened by the flesh. And so if you're wondering if it works, just go to the Old Testament, right? Over and over and over again, okay? God says, hey, if you wonder whether there's a way to sort of have all the right kinds of laws to create a civil and just society, I have this preserved ancient document. You can go read about it and figure out that no humans could ever do that. Because I actually created the perfect law for these people. And I was like, hey, I'll even be in charge. Like, I'll be your God and king and everything. And over and over and over again, even though the nation of Israel were the ones who asked God for the law in the first place, can't uphold it. They're unable and unwilling. Thomas Schreiner writes this in his commentary on Romans. He says, the nefarious character of sin is illustrated in its ability to turn a good thing, the law, to an evil purpose. The law itself provides no power for obedience. And thus, those who are in the flesh cannot do what it says, even if they long to do so. They are captives to the power of sin and are in misery under its dominion. Triumph over sin is realized not via the law, but through Jesus Christ. So Jesus begins the work of making us righteous first through justification that comes from his atonement for our sin. But then the spirit of God continues what Jesus started by instituting a new law that sanctifies us. The law of the spirit. Now, we're gonna hear about the spirit a lot in this series because Paul references the work of the Holy Spirit no less than 20 times in Romans chapter eight alone. It's really the main theme of this section of the letter, okay? The Holy Spirit is the second person of the Trinity. We have God the Father, God the Son, that's Jesus Christ, and God the Spirit. The word spirit has two basic meanings in the Old Testament, wind and power, okay? The Spirit of God rushes into our bodies. When we, when we say yes to Jesus, when we say yes to Christ, it rushes into our bodies like a powerful wind, riding a new law on our hearts that enables us to walk in the righteousness that God always intended for us to live in. It's the spirit of God who sanctifies us, which means to set us apart or make us holy into the kind of people who no longer walk according to the law or the principles of the world, but instead according to God's law, so that the law that once condemned us because of our sin nature now empowers us to usher in Christ's kingdom by our faith and good deeds. This week in our citizens' communities, we read this quote from N.T. Wright as we talked about what it means to live out one of our identities as servants in Christ's kingdom. And I love what he says. He says, the four gospels leave us 
with the primary application of the cross, not in an abstract preaching about how to have your sins forgiven or how to go to heaven. Okay, that's not the message of the gospel, but in an agenda in which the forgiven people are put to work, addressing the evils of the world in light of the victory of Calvary. Those who are put right with God through the cross, I love this, are to be putting right people for the world. Justification makes us right before God. Sanctification makes us righteous, able to live as God intended us. And so Paul is arguing that the law of the spirit is superior to the law of the flesh because the law of the flesh might make you right, but it can never make you righteous. So Paul's hope is that People living in a place like Rome that's so sophisticated would see how unbelievable and beautiful this is. That this rule of law from the Spirit supersedes anything they or we have ever seen. Let me illustrate this. Imagine this scenario. There's a woman nearing the end of her life. And she has spent her life collecting rare pieces of art. And each piece represents some important, intimate memory from her past. A young man breaks into her home and steals a very expensive painting. But this painting is not just any painting. It's a painting her late husband bought her just before he died. Now, the young man is foolish and careless in his theft. He doesn't wear a mask, so his face is on the woman's surveillance cameras. He doesn't wear gloves, so his fingerprints are all over the house. Worst of all, knowing he will likely be caught, he burns the painting to try and destroy the evidence. During the trial, the jury is not only convinced by the evidence, they are particularly attentive to the injustice of the man's choice to burn this priceless painting. They reach a verdict quickly. Guilty. Condemned. Now, this wouldn't happen because... We live by the standard of law that comes from humanity. But try to imagine that the woman who has been robbed is sitting in the back of the courtroom. And just at the moment that the judge is issuing a sentence, she stands up and demands that she, rather than this young man, take the punishment. The judge is taken aback by this. Why would you do such a thing? The judge asks the woman. She says, I have lived a long and wonderful life. This young man has his whole life ahead of him. That would never happen in America. But if it did, the man would be justified by the woman taking his punishment. In fact, no one else would do, right? If the young man's mom came forward and said, let me go instead of my son, it would not move any heart in the room. But the woman who incurred the greatest loss, think of the power of her standing in for him. He would be justified. 
Sanctification, though, takes it even further. Sanctification is the woman saying, while I am in prison, I want the young man to move into my house and take care of my collection, preserving each painting and adding to my collection, all the while learning to be an art collector himself so that one day when I die, I can give him all that I have so that he can steward all that is mine. My only request is that he write to me and visit me in prison to tell me how things are going in my estate and what new pieces of art he has secured and that he tell me about his life. Has he met someone he loves and bought them any pieces of art? I just want to know him and be in relationship with him. This story, this story sounds so far-fetched and preposterous to us. And yet, we are indeed the young man. And Jesus is, of course, the elderly woman. He has both justified us and is sanctifying us, though we deserve none of it. This is the law of the Spirit. It is greater than any law written in Rome or in the Constitution. It has a power the world has never seen. It is a law that doesn't just make people right. It makes them righteous. What might the young man do? The judge gives him two choices. To receive this gift of mercy. Or to plead guilty and get a reduced sentence, probation, and community service. Both Choices will justify him, make him right. But only one of those choices will change who he is from the inside out forever. When we settle for the laws of the flesh, we take the guilty plea deal. When we say yes to the spirit, we become different people, righteous people which is what God wanted for all of us from the beginning. We won't find that in any society created by human beings. But we can find it in him. And so each of us has to ask, which will I choose this morning? Let me pray. Jesus, I spend a good deal of my day looking for ways to justify myself through my own actions or looking to the world to give me a list of do's and don'ts that if I could just obey those things, then I could be made right in the world. But I don't just want to be made right. I want to be made righteous. Holy Spirit, I want you to transform my life. Change me into a different kind of man than is standing here right now. And I confess, God, that I can only receive that through the power of your spirit. And so I just say yes to you again. Thank you, Jesus, that you have washed my sin away. 
removed my transgressions as far as the east is from the west. God, we love you and thank you and worship you. It's in your name we pray, amen.